Yeah. Um, the first question is, doesn't creation only exist for the seer? If our physical eyes are seeing someone else's physical eyes, there is no seeing. If seeing seductiveness isn't just an interpretation of the mind and intellect, a vishayavasana. Yes. What, um, yes, this is Bhagavan's basic teaching is that um, nothing that is perceived, whether seen or heard or tasted or touched, has any existence independent of our perception of it. As Bhagavan says in, the, um, in verse 6 of Uludunaptu, the world is nothing but the five kinds of sense impression. So yes, the world doesn't exist independent of our perception of it, but so long as we take ourselves to be a body, this, because we take ourselves to be this body, this body seems to be real, and the whole world, and hence the whole world seems to be real. Because the body cannot be real, and the rest of the world unreal. The body is a part of the world. <clears throat> so the, <clears throat> the very nature of ego is to always experience itself as I am this body, and consequently to experience other things, and those other things always will seem real, so long as we're experiencing them. When we're experiencing a dream, the dream seems real, <clears throat> so long as we're experiencing it. Um, only when we wake up, because we cease to identify ourselves with the dream body, we immediately recognize, oh, it was just a dream. But so long as we were dreaming, it seemed to be real. Even if the thought, oh, this is just a dream, occurs to us in a dream, that thought, this is a dream, is itself a part of the dream. So this is the nature of Maya. So in a dream, if you see someone uh, who, uh, who tries to seduce you with seductive eyes, so long as you're dreaming, that person seems to be someone other than yourself. Of course, that person is only a fabrication of your own mind but it seems to be something other than ourselves. So <clears throat> um, one of the analogies that is given about our responses to the world, <clears throat> it is like a monkey uh, in front of a mirror. The monkey doesn't recognize that the other monkey in the mirror is, is only a reflection of itself. So seeing another monkey in the mirror, it becomes interested, it's attractive, it goes to, um, it goes to wants to play with it. But the, it's not able to play with it because the, it seems to be on the other side of this piece of glass. <clears throat> and then it finds, after some time, but whatever it does, the monkey is the other monkey is also doing. So it begins to get annoyed with it. This monkey is uh, is imitating me. But whatever it does, the monkey so it, it gets angry. It, first, it there's attraction, then there's repulsion. All these emotions, it's all only its own reflection. Likewise, this whole world is just our own reflection. All our desire, aversion, um, anger, um, passion, all these things is because we take this world to be something other than ourselves. We desire things in this world because we think this world is something other than ourselves. So if we see someone with a lot of money, we may desire to have more to, to be rich like them. Or if we see someone who's very learned, we may desire to be rich by like them. Or if we see someone who is very, in our view, very beautiful, we may want that person. In this way, it's all we are 
we are deluded by our own creation. <clears throat> I hope that adequately answers that question. Answer. But it doesn't make it any less real. I mean, any less yes. seemingly real. Though it yes. is unreal, it seems to be real. That is the problem. Yeah, thank you so much, Michael. Right. The second question is, as everything happens as it should happen, then is it not true that sometimes we are meant to be deceived by other gurus or sexual desires and so on for our own benefit? Also, I have the desire for self-realization, which is also a desire, in my case, even more than sexual desire. And then even more, does it happen uh, since... This is a sort this is sort of my dream state, and the self is not even aware of it. Thank you very much with all my love. Right. Um, whatever we are to experience in this life is according to destiny, according to prarabdha. Prarabdha is the fruit of our past actions that have been selected for us to experience in this lifetime. So whatever we are to experience, whatever is given to us, to experience is our um is, is our prarabdha that is predetermined but we though we cannot change what is destined to happen we can want to change it and we can try to change it so our own our own likes and dislikes and and our own efforts to achieve what we like and dislike, these are responding to what we are given to experience. So we we shouldn't take it that all our actions are according to destiny. What is according to destiny is the experiences, what we are given to experience, and how we respond, how we respond to what we are given to experience is according to our likes, dislikes, and so on. Um Yes, if it is our destiny to be misled by uh, a false guru, it will happen. But we have to remember that prarabdha is is tailor made to suit our um, our uh, vasanas. If it is, if you are a, basically a good person, you you won't have a prarabdha to become a. Um, a, a, a a serial murderer, I mean, killing one person after another. That it just that that prarabdha wouldn't match with the babasanas you have. So the the pra, type of prarabdha we have is tailor made to suit our vasanas. So if we if we fall a prey to uh, um, a false guru, yes, that is prarabdha. But that prarabdha is. Because of the particular vasanas we have, we are liable to fall prey to it. Someone who is who is a, a kind and compassionate person will not do will naturally not do harm to others. So they won't be given the um, the destiny of being a um, of being a mafia boss or being a, a cruel dictator or anything. That just won't happen. So though everything is predetermined, it is. But what is predetermined is tailor-made to suit our present level of spiritual development. So if we, um, it is a very unfortunate thing to be um, ensnared by a false guru. I mean, that analogy given by Ramakrishna Paramahamsa is a very beautiful analogy because there are so many people who, 
who say they desire liberation, they desire self-realization, and then they fall prey to false gurus. But false guru cannot give them liberation. The false guru is like the small water snake. The small water snake cannot swallow the frog. The, the false guru cannot destroy the ego. Um, and because we are in, enamored by uh, the guru, oh, my guru is so great, we are not able to escape from it. We, are, we become a willing... Um, we we willingly become ensnared in the in the deceptions of that false guru. So it's a very unfortunate situation. But we such a misfortune wouldn't uh, uh, befall us if we didn't have inclination to believe the type of gurus and the type of teaching. I mean, not only false gurus. There's also lots of false teachings. Where I mean, in the name of religion. So many, so many types of uh, different beliefs and doctrines are there. Uh, according to the nature of our vasanas, uh, we'll be attracted to certain types of teachings and not to other type of teachings. So if we have the 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 vasanas, but if we if we really want liberation, we will naturally be attracted to the real guru who can give us liberation. If we're attracted to the false gurus, that means though on the surface we may say, I want liberation. <laughs> it's easy to say, I want liberation, but do we actually want liberation? If we truly wanted liberation, Liberation is our own real nature. It's ever available for us. Why we haven't attained liberation? Because we still have too much desire and attachment for other things. Bhagavan once said, everyone who comes here uh, says that they come only for liberation. If I show even a small sample of liberation, all the crows will fly away and I'll be left sitting here alone. What he, what he taught us by saying that is, we for us i liberation oh that's that would be a very nice thing to achieve if i attain liberation then that's one more thing so so far in my life i've um i've done very well i've um i've amassed some wealth and i've uh, and i've become very learned and i've achieved this and i've achieved that but only one thing i haven't yet achieved i haven't achieved liberation let me achieve liberation also as if liberation is some sort of um is this something that we can gain? Liberation is not something that can be gained. Liberation is the state in which we lose everything, including ourselves. So, uh, because people don't know what liberation is, they say, oh, I want liberation. But are we ready to pay the price? The price for liberation is ego. Are we ready? And giving up ego means giving up everything. So are we ready to make that sac the required sacrifice for liberation? If we were ready, we would be liberated here and now. The fact that we are still here in bondage means we, uh, uh, we, we don't truly, uh, we, we, our love for being liberated is not yet strong enough. So we shouldn't think of liberation as something we're going to gain. I, Michael, one day if I continue doing my sadhana, I will get liberation. No, liberation is a state where not only there will be no Michael in liberation, the I that is now aware of itself as I am Michael, that I has to die. When that I dies, Michael, the world, everything will go. And what remains is what alone is real, what is what we always actually are, our own pure 
our own nature, pure being, pure awareness, pure happiness, pure love. That is what we actually are. That is liberation. So um, we, when we say we desire liberation, why haven't we attained it? Because we don't truly, we are not yet ready to pay the price for it. Because it is not something to be gained. Bhagavan often used to say, uh, jnana is not a new knowledge to be attained. If it were a new knowledge to be attained, once attained, it would be lost, because whatever comes has to go. Jnana is not a new knowledge to be attained. Jnana is, is our own reality. All but the only problem is we have now, we now know ourselves as something other than what we actually are. What we actually are is pure jnana. But we now know ourselves as I am this person, I am this body. So what is required is not to attain jnana, but simply to remove the wrong jnana, the wrong knowledge, I am this body. If we remove that, then what remains? The I am, but pure I am, but alone remains, that is jnana. So we we shouldn't we shouldn't take liberation to be something that we're going to gain. We shouldn't when we say we have desire for liberation. What does that mean? Is that then if you say you have desire for liberation, you're taking liberation to be something other than yourself. You yourself are liberation. There's no liberation other than you. We must. What we require is all-consuming love. The all-consuming love that makes us willing to pay the price for liberation, which is the, our own death is the price for liberation, the death of ego. That is, without death of ego, there is no liberation. Once there is death of ego, who is liberated? Our real nature. But our real nature is eternally liberated. So we don't gain anything by liberation. We lose everything. And when we lose everything, what alone is real, alone will remain. And we are always that. So even now we are liberated is the truth. But we, why don't we know ourselves as liberated? Because we have risen as ego and we know ourselves as I am Michael, I am this person, I am that person, whatever our name or whatever name may be given to the person we take ourselves to be, I am this person. That is what needs to be removed. I hope that is a clear answer to that question. Yes, thank you very much, Michael. Right. Uh, namaste, everybody. Um, yeah, um, Michael, I just want to ask you know, with uh, Ramana, I just wanted to clarify these following these uh, comments um, that I read. Is it is it true that he said that a mark of a real physical guru is, is how silent one becomes in their presence, as well as the level of equality that they that they exhibit to everybody? Um, because I read that in, uh, I'm sure it was B as you be as you are and uh, i know that there are a lot of comments about ramana but i just want verification really which ones are true and which ones aren't it's very difficult to say with all these things that are attributed to bhagavan what yeah, exactly. actually he said because even even things that were recorded in his lifetime Often the people who recorded, they recorded what they understood he meant. So let us let us consider this statement that the mark of a true guru is the peace you feel in his presence. That's how it's recorded there. But what does that mean? Is Bhagavan would Bhagavan say that if you just attain a, a, a temporary quiescence, uh, that is a mark of no. 
what he's talking about, if, if at all he said something like that, what he's talking about is when we come to the real guru, like Bhagavan, when we understand his teachings and try to apply his teachings, our life is much more peaceful. We because we we are not troubled by we still have desires. Of course we have desires, but we are not troubled by them so much as we would be if we hadn't come to Bhagavan. So it's not about um do you feel uh People used to say to Bhagavan, Bhagavan, when I come here, when I'm in your presence, I feel peace. But when I go away, oh, uh, I, all the uh, worldly problems come back again and I'm no longer at peace. That is not the peace we are seeking. The peace we are seeking is the eternal peace of our own being. So when Bhagavan said about equanimity, he's not talking about a temporary, um, a temporary equanimity. He's talking about a lasting equanimity. Uh, uh, <clears throat> so, Bhagavan, if at all Bhagavan said something like that, he would have been talking about something much deeper than just the superficial impression. Of course, people, when they come to Bhagavan, they feel some degree of peace. But people, even when they go to false gurus, because of their faith in the false guru, they also feel, oh, when I'm in your, um, when I'm in your presence, Swamiji, I'm very, very peaceful. That Swamiji may be a rogue. He may be cheating people. But because I believe that Swami is a great Mahatma, when I come to his presence, I feel very peaceful. So these are unreliable signs. It's not the temporary peace. It is we can judge the benefit of coming to the real guru over years and years and years. Are we are we generally a more do we experience generally more equanimity? Of course, our life is full of problems. Everyone has life full of problems. But how do we respond to the problems life throws at us? So um we, we we need to be very, very um, careful in understanding these things. Firstly, we don't know exactly what Bhagavan said. And secondly, are we understanding what he said correctly? If, even if that is what he said, are we understanding it correctly? So um, another thing that is often said, that is recorded somewhere, for example, someone asked, it's recorded somewhere, but some asked, someone asked Bhagavan, what is the sign of progress? And the Bhagavan reportedly, according to this, Bhagavan said, uh, you can tell your progress by freedom from thoughts. What does that even mean? How can we be free of thoughts? Ego is itself a thought. The whole world is thought. So what does it even mean? So a lot of these People hear Bhagavan saying something, they understand it in their own way and they record it. What Bhagavan actually said when he was asked about what is the sign of progress, Bhagavan said, the only sign of progress is perseverance. Why is that a sign of progress? Because the perseverance, I mean, perseverance in this practice of self-investigation and self-surrender. Why is that the sign of progress? Because to the extent to which we have love to subside back into ourselves, we will be turning our attention back within persistently. If we are not persevering in the practice, that means we don't really have love for this. So when that is a that is a reliable um, uh, um, a reliable indicator. How much do we really love to 
be aware of ourself alone and to remain as ourself alone. How much we put into practice, that is how much we love that. So that's reliable. About thoughts, how can we how can we tell? And also it, thoughts, how are we to measure thoughts? It's not only the number of thoughts. Supposing we could quantify how many thoughts have I had at the end of a day. Today, I've had 10,225 thoughts. It, thoughts are not like that. They're not individual little things. So we can't, we can't quantify them. Rather, it is the quality of thought. Are, are the, are, how much impact are thoughts having upon us? If we are much agitated, much upset, much uh, filled with desire, it's not the number of thoughts, it's the intensity of the thoughts. So there are so many factors have to be considered. But generally speaking, if we are, if we are making progress in this path, we will be, firstly, we will be persevering in our practice. Because we are persevering, because we're trying to turn our attention more and more within, though there may be so many thoughts, we'll be less concerned about the thoughts that rise. So these are all very, very subtle things. And people, Bhagavan may say things that have a subtle meaning, but people without subtle understanding will uh, attribute a, a grosser meaning to that, and they record in their own words. It's not, most of these things were recorded in English. Bhagavan wasn't speaking in English. Very Bhagavan could speak in English, but very, very rarely did he say, did he speak in English. Almost invariably, he was speaking either in Tamil or sometimes Telugu or Malayalam, but mostly Tamil. But, but, but most of these so-called te teachings of Bhagavan in his own words, they were recorded in English, not in his own words. And even if we, it was recorded in Tamil, has the person recording it, have they understood what actually Bhagavan meant? Or are they just recording what they have understood of what they think he meant? So um, I, I think these things like saying that um, you can measure your progress by the, uh, by the number of thoughts or something, or the amount of thoughts, that's a very, very unreliable guide. And to judge the, the state of a to, to judge the, the true guru, by whether you feel peaceful in his presence is again an unreliable guide. Because sometimes you can be in the presence of Bhagavan, but something can be agitating your mind. I mean, people who lived with Bhagavan for years, were they all in a, a calm, peaceful state of mind? No, they had all their, their worldly worries and passions and everything. Um, uh, and just because you, you experience a temporary peace, that may be just a temporary influence. That can come about even, as I say, even by belief. There may be a, you may believe someone who's a complete um, who's a complete fraud. You may believe him to be a great guru because of your belief in him. You may experience peace in his presence. What does that tell you? It doesn't really mean anything. <clears throat> the mind cannot tell who is the true guru. But if we are when we are fit for uh, coming to a true guru and uh, um, uh, imbibing the real teachings and following the real teachings, it will happen automatically. The guru will come into our life. The teachings will be given to us. We will be able to understand it because we are fit for it. Those who are not fit for it, even if they come to the real guru, 
Bhagavan said in, uh, there's a verse in Guru Kabai where Bhagavan said, just like the shadow of the foot of a lamp, there are those who stay all their life until they grow old in the presence of the Jnana Guru, but still their ignorance isn't removed. So um, we can't generalize about these things. Why is their ignorance not removed? Because they're still very immature. That doesn't mean there's no benefit in, for them in being in the presence of Bhagavan. Anyone who is in the presence of Bhagavan, however immature they may be, they will be benefited by his presence. But how much they will be benefited depends upon th their maturity. If, if, if you've got a raging fire, if you, um, if you throw uh, a, uh, a plantain, a, a banana tree in a fire, the banana tree is full of moisture. It'll take a long time to burn. If you throw a piece of dry wood, it will burn much more quickly. If you throw gunpowder, it will burn immediately. So it's, it's not just the Guru, it's how ready are we for the Guru. That's also very important. But if, when we are ready, we will automatically be attracted to the real Guru. Those who are attracted to Gurus who are who, to the false Gurus, those who, like the frog who falls a prey to the water snake, they, that is because of their immaturity. They would be the reason they're attracted to the false gurus is because then because they they lack the viveka, they lack the clarity of discrimination. So how can we avoid falling prey to the um, falling prey to the cruelty of uh, of of um, to the cruelty of falling prey to a to a false guru? only by the grace of Arunachala, only by the grace of Bhagavan. And that grace is not something outside ourselves, it's inside ourselves. So in order to, um, that grace is the clarity of pure awareness that is ever shining in our heart. So we will be benefited by that clarity to the extent to which we look within. So if you want to avoid being misled by false gurus, Follow the path Bhagavan taught us to look within more and more. The more we look within, the more our mind will be bathed in clarity, will be immersed in clarity, and the more easily we'll be able to uh, see through all the false gurus. I hope this is a um, this is an adequate answer to that question. Yeah, thanks, Michael. Sorry, I'm a bit conscientious because I've got background noise, but yeah, that was an adequate answer. Uh, okay. No, what it was, I, I understand that. It's not about being free of thought. I mean, I read somewhere that maybe a sign of progress, maybe it's not right, but uh, that that those tormenting thoughts, uh, want, when they lose their grip slightly or when they lose their power, maybe that is... We, a, a we may be sign. less tormented by thoughts, yes. But yeah. that is, we're less tormented by thoughts because of our love to turn within. So long as we have a, so long as we have greater liking to go outwards than to go inwards, we will be tormented by thoughts, by desires, by likes, dislikes, and so on. Also, what you just said about the the gunpowder analogy. I mean, I I also read uh, Bhagwan use an analogy about ripeness, about gunpowder and uh, a a wet coal and, and dry coal. Was that true? Is is that uh, a, something? Yes, that Bhagwan really did said? use. Did, did you such analogies? Uh, would you be able to elaborate on that in terms of the ripeness of a, a devotee? Did he say that? Yes, that I mean, we're we, all at we, different we stages all, of ripeness. We, 
we all come when we when we are brought when we come to Bhagavan, we are all at different stages of spiritual development. But why do we come to Bhagavan to develop further? So even if we have a wet plant and uh, a wet banana uh, tree uh, plant, we shouldn't worry. We once we've been caught in that fire, we'll be burnt sooner or later. So once we come to Bhagavan, we are the prey in the jaws of the tiger. We will certainly be saved by him. How long it takes for us to be saved by him depends upon our maturity. If we're immature, we won't be following his path, or we won't. We, we may follow his path only when we have lots of blows. Um, so it it all depends. It all depends on um, how mature we are, and. No matter how much how immature we are, we can our progress will be fast, it will be speedy to the extent to which we follow Bhagavan's path. The more we even if we're very immature, if we if by his grace we have that we cultivate that love to turn within, well, that is itself maturity. So everything will be done by his grace. But we need what we should be concerned about, his grace we can rely upon 100 percent but we need to cooperate with his grace by yielding ourselves to it and we yield ourselves to it by trying to turn within hold on to our own being and thereby subside back within and surrender ourselves okay michael super thanks for that michael just last one thing uh, you know um the problem i find is as with maya um and this kind of spiritual supermarket we have at the moment there's just so many gurus and there's just so many so much false falseness out there i feel like i can only really seek sanctuary and refuge in saints of, of the past and even ramana but at what's out there at the moment I, I don't feel any sense of attraction to anything that's out there and um and it just feels like back in when you when i read uh times of old in, in shankara's age that there was a healthy, vibrant debating culture there where, you know, truth would, you know, people would go out and you'd expose and you'd, you know, get the truth out there on the table. There just doesn't seem to be that that level of um, that culture. And I'd like to see that culture because it would provide so much clarity for the devotee where you see truth exposing falsity, uh, so to speak, where, where, you know, the true diamonds reveal the blemishes of the false ones. And you just don't see that. Um, culture uh where um then you know where these the fake gurus can be exposed uh, it seems like in shankara's era there was a, a, a healthy debating culture um firstly false gurus are not a modern phenomena there have been false gurus from time immemorial and there are false gurus and false gurus some false gurus are out and out they they deliberately want to, to cheat people for their money or whatever. There are many false gurus who are actually very well-intentioned, as I, as I mentioned earlier. Many, many people, they follow the spiritual, they follow some spiritual path, they get some experience, and they think what they've achieved is the ultimate. And they therefore think, ah, now I'm ready to, to help others. So not all false gurus are out-and-out out fraud. Some of them are out-and-out out fraud. Many of them, they genuinely believe what they, are, what they have discovered is the ultimate. But of course, it isn't the ultimate. So there are all types of gurus, all types of different 
uh, philosophies, different religions and everything. Why is that to suit the minds of different people in different stages of spiritual development? Um, regarding the debating culture in, um, in the time of Adi Shankara, for example, why did Adi Shankara have to debate with so many other schools of thought? Because there were so many different philosophies in those days. That means people had so many different ideas. Not everyone was going to agree with Shankara. However, however clever he may be in, in argument, they still, they, because people are attracted to the philosophies that appeal to them. So you can't convince someone by argument if they are not willing to be to be convinced. They will always find some reason not to accept what you say. That's why there have always been so many different systems of philosophy, so many different points of view. This is why Bhagavan didn't go out to debate with anyone. Bhagavan said, rather than debating with someone, the real transformation can be... Uh, uh, can be uh, brought about only in silence. Supposing you're very good at at um, debating and you're able to defeat other people's arguments, those other people may be defeated, but are they going to be happy? No, they're not going to be happy. They're still not going to be ready to accept your philosophy because they, it's their philosophy that they like. So the fact their philosophy is, um, has been shown to be false by you isn't going to make them give up. They're just going to feel bad about it. And they're going to try and find some fault with your philosophy. Whether it's a real fault with your philosophy or not, they will find some fault with it. There are people who, you, if you want to find fault with Bhagavan's teachings, you can find fault with it. Yeah, because but the mind can will believe whatever it wants to believe. So it's it's not a matter, you can't, Spirituality is not just about winning philosophical arguments. And even Bhagavan, when Bhagavan was asked, when Yogananda, for example, when Yogananda, the, the, that Swami who went to America and started the Self-Realization Fellowship, when he came to Bhagavan, he uh, is recorded in talks. He asked Bhagavan, what teaching should be given for the uplift of the masses? Bhagavan simply replied, no teaching can be given for the uplift of the masses. Teachings cannot be on mass. Teachings has to be according to the taught. And we can see that with Bhagavan. Though in his main works, Uludunapdu, Pradeshundia, Anmavide, Aranachastut, Panchikam, we can see a clear, consistent, precise philosophy. When people come and ask Bhagavan questions, he doesn't always, he's, it's not always his own, his own core teaching that he's teaching. He teaches what is appropriate to them at their level of spiritual development. So um, there's no such, there's a reason why there are so many different religions, why there are so many different philosophies. And from the perspective of a Dvaita, that is from, there are some Advaitins who want to criticize all other uh, philosophies. But from the perspective of a mature Advaitin, all other philosophies have their place because they're all suited to people at different levels of spiritual development. We can't expect everyone to be ready to accept Bhagavan's teachings. Bhagavan's teachings are extremely radical. So they are not for not everyone is ready for them yet. So that's why there are other religions, other different I mean, even within Vedanta, how many different interpretations are there of Vedanta? There's a Dvaita, there's Veda Abeda, there's Vishista Dvaita, there's Dvaita, 
there's a Chintya Bhedra Bhedra, there's a Suddha Dvaita, there's a, a Dvaita Dvaita. There's so many different interpretations of Vedanta are there. Because they, it's to suit different, different minds. So when there's so much diversity within Vedanta, how much diversity there is outside? Even within Buddhism, so many different types of Buddhism, so many different Buddhist philosophies were there. In any religion, even in Islam, very different. There's the Sunni and the Shia, there's the Sufis, there's the, the fundamentalists, all different type interpretations are there. In Christianity, so many different interpretations. So it, all these are, uh, 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 it's, people are attracted to what it suits their level of spiritual development. And these, all these different religions, they all have a place. They may not be the ultimate truth, but they are what is beneficial for people at certain levels of spiritual development. So even these false gurus, they also have a function. They also are part of the spiritual journey of those who are drawn to them. But we have to outgrow these false gurus. And when we are ready for it, we'll be brought to the real guru like Bhagavan. And um, then we are... We are getting close to our destination. But having come to a guru like Bhagavan, what is important is that we follow the path he has shown. Bhagavan, in the 12th paragraph of, of Nana, he starts by saying, God and guru are in truth not different. From the, We should think of very carefully what Bhagavan means by this. When he says God and guru are not different, there is only one God, Therefore, there is only one guru. Not every Tom, Dick, and Harry is a guru. Who is guru? Guru is not a person. Because then guru has appeared in many forms. Guru has appeared as, as Buddha and Shankar and Jesus or Bhagavan. Some maybe Ramakrishna Paramahamsa. Guru may have appeared in so many different forms, but guru is one. And what is the reality of Guru? As Bhagavan said, Guru is that which is shining in our heart as our own being, I am. So the, the real Guru is only within us. Guru appears outwardly in form, as for example, as Bhagavan, in order to give us these teachings to turn back within. So the function of the outward form of Guru is to turn us within. So, as I say, the first sentence of that sentiment, Bhagavan said, God and Guru are in truth not different, that we should think very deeply about the implications of that. And we should understand that we shouldn't take every Tom, Dick and Harry who claims to be a Guru to be God. <laughs> Obviously not. There's only one God. There's only one Guru. Um, and then Bhagavan goes on to say, just like what has been caught in the jaws of a tiger cannot escape, those who have been caught in the glance of Guru's grace will surely be saved by him and will never be forsaken. But then he adds an important proviso. Eninum Guru Kartya Varipadi Tavaradu Nadakavendam. Nevertheless, it is necessary to follow without fail the path shown by Guru. So on the one hand, Bhagavan assures us, having come to Guru, our salvation is, is assured. But that doesn't mean we can just sit back and say, oh, Bhagavan can save me, so I need I can just go about my worldly life and uh, Bhagavan will save me. I surrender to Bhagavan, simply saying that and thinking we can get on with our life. That is not, 
if we have truly been caught in the glance of Guru's grace, we will be drawn to follow his path and we will try our best to turn our attention within, to surrender ourselves to him. So our, what, Guru will always do his work. Guru is always doing his work unfailingly. It's we who have to do our work by surrendering ourselves to Guru, by yielding ourselves to his grace. Because so long as we rise as ego, we are obstructing the work of his grace. If we want to, his grace to flow freely and to swallow us entirely, we need to subside back within. And we can subside back within only by turning our attention within and clinging firmly to self-attentiveness to the best of our ability. Even if we find it difficult to do so, we should at least try to do so. So long as we're trying to do so, we're moving in the right direction. Thank you for that, Michael. Right. So it starts. So the next question is, your devotion and in-depth sharing of this teaching is a tremendous benefit. Thank you. It's truly a blessing. It seems the self used the sexual urge in order to have a medium to express itself. That's the question. What do you mean by the self? It is ego who is... who. who <laughs> That is, sexual urges for whom? It's only for ego. Uh, it's only when we rise as ego, but we, but we identify ourselves as a body, and therefore we, we feel this sexual attraction. Um, so it, it is, the self isn't using... It, what do you mean by the self? If by the self you mean your real nature, your real nature is just pure being. Pure being doesn't do anything. It is just is as it is. But the nature of pure being is also grace because the, the, the pure being is not only pure being, it's pure awareness, it's pure happiness, and it's pure love. And the love that our own real nature has for itself is what draws us back within because in the view of our real nature, this ego is nothing other than itself. So it, it, by seeing us, by our real nature is, is Bhagavan. That is what, what Bhagavan actually is, is our real nature. Though he appeared outwardly as a person like us, what he actually is, is our own real nature, the pure awareness I am, but we actually are. He doesn't see us as other than himself. He sees us as himself. He's, because he sees us as himself, he loves us as himself. So his love for us is infinite. His love for us is truly greater than our love for ourselves. Because whereas we love ourselves as this little person that we mistake ourselves to be, he loves us as we actually are. So his love is the supreme power. That is what we experience as his grace. So his grace is what draws us back to himself. It's not that he's doing anything. He's just, he, just by being as he is, he automatically draws us. Um, in an earlier verse of Akshramlai, Bhagavan uses the analogy of a magnet, like a magnet attracting iron. Attract me and be in you and unite me with yourself. Kantami rumupol kavandu. Kavandu means drawing, attracting, pulling. Kavandin dene vidamal, without leaving me, kalandeno dirupai. Kalandu means uniting, enodu with me. Be uniting with me. So, 
but the power of grace attracts us to go inwards. But what attracts us to go outwards, the, the sexual attraction, that's all part of Maya. And Maya, Maya is nothing but our own mind. Ego itself is Maya. So the, it is Maya that is drawing our attention outwards. It is grace that is drawing our attention back within. So, so long as we, we allow ourselves to be swayed by our Vishaya Vasanas and to run after the illusory pleasures of this world, we are, we are caught up in the spell of Maya. To free ourselves from Maya, we need to turn back within and hold on to our own being. That is grace drawing us back within. So we can't say that it's it's the self or grace or anything that is that is um, uh, causing us to be attracted to external things. It is our own vasanas, and those vasanas of Maya. The root of the root of Maya is ego. Ego is the abharana. Abharana means the, the veiling power. Because as soon as we rise as ego, we're aware of ourselves as I am this body. So that is that false awareness, I am this body, is concealing, it's not completely obscuring. I mean, it's not completely hiding, but it's obscuring. It's, it's, um, it's covering over and making what we actually are seem to be something other than what it actually is. So ego is the avarana. Its vasanas are the big shaper. They are what um, uh, produce all this um, this uh, this projection. So it's the vasanas that it's the vishaya vasanas that draw our mind outward. So sexual desire is the sprouting of a vishaya vasana. The the vasana which arises by grace. Is only sat vasana, the inclination to return within, to hold on to our being and to subside back into our being. I hope that is a clear answer. Uh, the next question is um, from somebody who's new to the group, and uh, he thanks us for allowing him to join. And uh, and so he's apologizing, says, sorry, this is off topic, but about the practice, it's been stuck with me for a bit. In his book, H-A-T-A-O-B, um, a verse says, self-word directing th thought will act like a portal, a doorway through which we can enter the state of self-attentiveness, etc. My question is, once... My question is, once through it's like i pop back out almost instantly because of breath it seems repeat and the same thing happens then frustration pops in then i lose the portal altogether so i'm assuming that i'm probably not actually passing through it idk would love your feedback thanks okay um Yes, in the sense we can say it's a portal, but it's it's only that is just a, a metaphor. It's um, that is the the nature of the mind is to go outwards. It is the very nature of mind to constantly be going outwards under the sway of its vishaya vasanas. We are trying to turn back within. Outwards means towards anything other than ourselves towards thoughts, feelings, emotions, perceptions, all, all these things. Inwards means towards ourself alone. So 
the, the natural flow of the mind is outwards. We are trying to turn back within. So we are, so to speak, flowing, trying to swim against the current. So it being self-attentive is actually very easy. Why it seems to be difficult, why we seem to be not seem to be unable to hold on to the self-attentiveness for more than a few moments at a time is because of the our strong liking to go outwards. That is, the Shaya Vasanas are the inclination to seek happiness in things other than ourselves. Those inclinations are what arise as likes, dislikes, desires, and so on. So these are what are pulling us outwards. So it, it is the experience of all of us when we try and turn our attention within, if we that that is it, it is possible to hold on to a slight degree of self-attentiveness, even in the midst of other activities. So we but, but that is not very deep self-attentiveness. If we try to go deeper within, if we try to attend to ourselves more deeply, the deeper we try to go, the more quickly the mind will jump out. Um, and then we can give an analogy for this. If you have a, a beach ball, that's a big plastic ball, and you go to the sea and you try and push the ball under the sea, you can push it down a few inches or a few centimeters and hold it there a little bit steadily. But if you try and push it down further, the further you try and push it down, the more the resistance will be. And when you try and push it down, it'll slip up this way. If you try to stop it slipping that way, it'll slip that way. So it's very difficult because of the, um, because it's a fully inflated um, um, a beach ball, it's, you, you won't be able to push it under the water completely. You can only push it to a certain extent. The further you push it, the, the shorter the time you'll be able to hold it there. Um, that is the nature of the mind. So we have to contend with that. We have to persevere in the practice. If you continue trying to practice this particular beach ball, it is such, the more you try and press it down, the more it, it, the air starts leaking out. So though at first it's very difficult, if you persevere in the practice, slowly, slowly it will be deflating. And as it deflates, it becomes easier and easier to, to push it down within. Once it's completely deflated, it'll itself sink down to the bottom. Such is the nature of the mind. The mind is now full. The air in the beach ball is our Bishaya Vasanas. They are what are pushing us outwards. So we, the only way to overcome these Vishaya Vasanas is by persevering in the, this practice. The more we try to go within, the more the Vishaya Vasanas, the inclination to seek happiness in other things, will get weakened, and the more the sat vasana, sat means being, that means our own being, the more the inclination to seek happiness in our own being will increase. So however much our mind jumps outwards, it doesn't matter. As Bhagavan says in Nana, however many thoughts rise, so what? As and when each thought rises, we we sh instead of following that thought, instead of um, uh, allowing that thought to be completed, we should investigate to whom is this thought. That means we should turn our attention away from the thought, 
back towards ourselves, but one to whom the thought appears. So it's that, that, that patient and persistent practice is necessary. Until we reach this the final goal, we have to continue this practice. And it'll they, we will continue to face resistance because the Bishaya Vasanas, which are our own likings, will be constantly pulling us, pushing us outwards. So we if we are serious about following this path, we need to be ready to face any amount of difficulty, any amount of resistance, because the only way to succeed is to persevere in spite of any amount of difficulty that we have to face along the way. I hope this is a, a, a clear answer to that question. Most definitely, sir. Thank you very much. Okay, right. We shouldn't be disheartened. We should keep on trying. The very fact that we are trying, as Bhagavan said, the only sign of progress is perseverance. So long as we're persevering, we're moving in the right direction. We may feel that we're not, uh, we're not being very successful, doesn't matter. So long as we're trying, that's all that matters. Because the extent to which we are trying is the measure of our love. And love is the key to success in this path. As Bhagavan used to say, bhakti is the mother of jnana. Love, it's only by love that we can, uh, we, can, um, we can succeed in this path. And the measure of our love is the extent to which we are persevering in this practice. The next question is, are we able to abide in the self and still interact with the world? What is the nature of such an interaction? The second part of the question is, in such an interaction, can it bring about emotional triggers such as anger, pain, etc.? When they are triggered, are they supposed to be less intense since you are aware? It seems, on the contrary, more painful as you are aware. What does it mean to abide in ourself? Abiding in ourself means being wholly absorbed in ourself remaining without rising as ego. So long as we're remaining without rising as ego, we won't be, we won't be operating, we won't be even aware of the world. If we're really deeply abiding in ourselves, we won't even be aware of the world. However, whether we turn within and however deep we go within, the prarabdha will continue. So long as there's ego, there will be a prarabdha continuing. Until ego is completely annihilated, the prarabdha will continue. But the deeper we go within, the less we will be aware of the prarabdha. Prarabdha means what is given to us to experience. We can experience a prarabdha only if we look outwards. If we look inwards, we're not going to be affected by that. But still the prarabdha, the events of life will go on. And uh, in order for our prarabdha to unfold, there are certain actions we have to do. Those actions that we need to do in order to facilitate our prarabdha, we means here our mind, speech, and body. Whatever actions of mind, speech, and body are necessary for the unfoldment of our prarabdha, we will be made to do by God. So if we are going deep within, whatever actions we of mind, speech, and body are necessary for the prarabdha to carry on, 
God will make them do. So, but we won't concern ourselves with that because our only interest is going within. So to the extent to which we go within, we detach ourselves from the mind, speech, and body, which are doing these actions. So we will be unaffected by them. We'll be unconcerned by them. So if we are truly abiding in ourselves, if we are going, sinking deep within ourselves, we won't even be aware of the world or anything. So long as we are aware of the world and aware of our interactions with the world, there may be a slight degree of self-attentiveness, but it's not very deep. So again, it depends what we, when we talk about, when we use words like self-abidance, what do we really mean? Self-abidance uh, implies at least some depth of self-attentiveness. The, the degree of self-abidance is, is, is the degree of self-attentiveness. But if, if our self-attentiveness is only very tenuous, then we can hardly call it self-abidance. So it's better when we talk about self-abidance to reserve that term for going deep within ourselves, for sinking deep into the heart. And when we sink deep into the heart, we are not concerned about the world. If we were concerned about the world, we wouldn't be sinking deep in the heart. I hope that's a clear answer to that question. But just a, it is possible, even in the midst of our day-to-day -day activities, even when we are still um, mind is still mostly going outwards, we can even then we can hold on to at least some degree of self-attentiveness, because whatever we may be doing, whatever may be our state of mind, we never cease to be aware I am. Most of the time, because we're interested in other things, we overlook our this basic awareness. We overlook our own being. And, and so we get caught up in activities. But uh, uh, whether, whether we are, um, <clears throat> whatever we may be doing, we, we are always free. Because we're always aware I am, we're always free to be attentively aware I am. Being attentively aware I am is what is called being uh, what is called self-investigation. And the, the greater the degree of attentiveness, the deeper we are sinking within. Uh, the next question is, how do you deal with other people's projections and consequent actions, behavior, when they identify you through their egoic projections, example, sexism and racism? In the context of this verse and in popular culture, you are a woman, you are an object to be enjoyed, etc. I find it so uncomfortable when I'm increasingly enjoying the freedom of identifying only as I am. Thank you. Yes, if we, the only, that is, we have now risen as ego. Having risen as ego, we experience as ourselves as a body, either as a male body or a female body. Uh, yes, in our cultures, we do. There is a, a tendency in the culture. I mean, all, all, all. When we talk about objectification, when we are sexually attracted to someone else, that other person is an object. Even we 
what we take ourselves to be is an object. This body is an object. That body is an object. So, of course, sexual sexual attraction is all about objectification. Um, but when we talk about objectification, it also has a, another connotation. But instead of seeing a person as a person, in other words, instead of seeing them as a whole person with feelings, thought, uh, and uh, their own likes, dislikes, and so on, when we see them just as an object of gratification, that is, I think, what is generally meant when it's talked about objectifying. And that happens a lot in society. We can't avoid that. We can't, uh, we can't change how other people see us. The only thing we can do is to detach ourselves from this person we seem to be. We can detach ourselves only by going within. So, um, so long as we allow our mind to come outwards, we have to face all sorts of problems. We have to uh, face the problems like the problem you're talking about, the problem of uh, of being viewed as an as a, as an object of of uh, gratification for some, by some other person. You can't avoid anyone looking at you in that way, but you can avoid being concerned about it by detaching yourself from the person you seem to be. Now, your destiny in this lifetime, you're born a woman. You you can't you can't cease to be a woman so long as you as as this life continues. You're born a woman. You you remain a woman. The others are born men. They remain men. What we need to do is, I mean, nowadays some people, um, well, not only nowadays. It's happened since time immemorial. There have been people who prefer to change gender, but for various reasons. I mean, that's a that's another matter. But. Um, the only way to be free of all these things is not changing our gender. It is giving up the identification with the body. That that The root problem is this identification with the body. If you feel attracted to others, it's because you identify yourself with the body. If you feel um, averse to people being attracted to you, it's because you identify yourself with the body. So the problem is the same for all of us. That is, the problem may take different forms, but the root problem for all of us is this identification with that as I am this body. The only solution to all these problems is to give up this identification. We can give up this identification only by turning within and sinking back into the heart. And then when if we turn within and sink into the heart, what does it matter how others uh, view us? It, it really doesn't matter because the, the, we, we are detached from this person. We are no longer this person. If we've really sunk into the heart, we are no longer the, the person that we previously took ourselves to be. I hope that is um, an adequate answer to that question. There's a question from Elena. I'm sorry. Uh, hello, Michael. Thank hello. You very much. Uh, actually, it was not uh, much of a question. It, it was uh, like some mix uh, regarding gurus. Uh, maybe it is not the most important thing now uh, since we have Khagavan with us. But I mean that uh, it is all, in a way, it is interesting question because I myself thought that it, it more depends not even on guru, but on your own understanding and your own efforts. Because, uh, for example, sometimes even uh, 
students can be he, I mean, history shows somehow sometimes that uh, students can be wiser than their gurus. Um, yes. <laughs> uh, yes, and, yes, and uh, uh, and to me, uh, this story with Buddha is very bright and important in this sense because he had some inner feeling: what is right, what is wrong. He was not satisfied with gurus that he met yeah. one by one, and uh, and he because he had he was mature enough of course and uh, he had this inner feeling what is uh, right for him that is why he finally came to the uh, some last point in this sense yes. uh, on the other hand um, i agree with you also that uh, it is all matter of prarabha only uh, uh, about gurus and uh, uh, sometimes uh, to call false guru someone who is genuinely interested in spirituality in their own way but very seriously um, it is also very great aid uh, when someone shows you a serious approach to whatever kind of uh, spiritual practices he uh, uh, advocate. Um, so um, uh, th this is also important. So I just I wanted to say that um, it depends. It depends much on us because, for example, uh, again, Pahavan's uh, case. Not I remember very well this uh, case when someone said that, "Oh, I stand with Pahavan for sixteen years. Nothing happened to me." So he is not good. Good guru. He is just something. So again, it just says that uh, yes, the yes. is yeah, is this student. So I just wanted to ask you uh, whether it is. It is real. I mean, is, is, am I correct thinking that uh, your own efforts in whatever teachings you practice are the most important thing, actually? Uh, well, I, I would say Guru's grace is most important, yes, but yes, our yes. own efforts are also very important. In the case of Buddha, for example, they, they, he went to so many water snakes, but none of those water snakes could catch him because he had too much discrimination. He was able to see, he, he tried what the, these, um, these would-be gurus taught him, and he found this wasn't the way. So he was being guided from within by his, uh, that, that his uh, grace was shining in his heart in the form of a clear discrimination. That is why he eventually rejected all these gurus, and he found the way himself, within himself. Um, there are other cases uh, that is, you, you say sometimes a guru, the disciples are better than a guru. Obviously, Buddha is one example. Another famous example is, um, is Kabir Das. Kabir was a very, very great devotee, but he was born in a, um, in a Muslim family. He was born in a family of Muslim weavers. So they were considered... From the caste point of view, it was a low caste, and also another religion. So he, he something very, very much below us, uh, very highly, um, a very superior Brahmin guru. But because he was a simple devotee, he took a certain guru named Ramananda as his guru. Ramananda wouldn't even allow him to come near, but he used to, he used to, from a distance, he used to, he used to uh, uh, listen to his guru. Um, but if ever the guru's other disciples saw him, they would drive him away. What is this dirty Muslim fellow doing here? 
Um, but he had great faith in his guru. Uh, there's a story in his life. That is, one day, he was living in, in Varanasi. And one day, uh, a yogi came from the Himalayas. This yogi had been do, practicing some yoga and had acquired some siddhis. So he came to Varanasi to show off his superiority. So he inquired who of the... Um, who are the great gurus here? And he started to challenge all the gurus. But uh, most of the gurus in Varanasi, they were not siddhas, so they couldn't uh, compete with this fellow. So eventually he came to know about Ramananda. So he issued a challenge to Ramananda. And all the people were talking about it. What is Ramananda going to do now? He's been challenged by this uh, person. And eventually Kabir, who was sitting in his shop doing his weaving, he heard about this. He got very angry. Who is this fellow to challenge my guru? So he came out, he came out and was, he, he, because he was weaving, he had a ball of thread in his hand, which he was putting from side to side as the, um, as the, as the, the weaving machine was going up and down. And that's how he was doing his, uh, his weaving. So he broke off that ball of thread. And with the ball of thread in his hand, he rushed out into the street. And he asked, where's this fellow who's challenging my guru? And eventually he found him. And he said, who are you to challenge my guru? First, you must challenge me. So that Siddha then put his, he had a big long stick. He put his stick and he got up on top of the stick. And Kabir Das, he threw his ball of thread in the air. So it, it, the ball went up and there was a long thread was, was standing there in the air. And he got up on top of that and said, come up here and challenge me. And of course, that Siddha couldn't do anything. Was, was Kabir Das a Siddha? No. He was a simple devotee. But by the power of his Guru Bhakti, he was able to, he was able to uh, vanquish this Siddha. So his Guru couldn't have done that. But he could do it because he... Though the guru wasn't such a, a, a ripe guru, the disciple was a fully ripe disciple. So, yes, if, if the disciple is really mature, even the water snake cannot catch them. They cannot be held back by the immaturity of their guru. But when Ramakrishna Paramahamsa told this incident of the, the frog caught by the water snake, he used that as an analogy for immature people who are attracted to... Um, to unqualified gurus, the, the unqualified gurus cannot save them, cannot annihilate, cannot swallow their ego. The, the Ramakrishna, when he was telling that story, Ramakrishna said, uh, when he, 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 this analogy came to him one day when he was walking in the Panchavati, in, that, uh, in the temple garden. He heard a frog croaking. And he, it was going, continuing to croak, 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 croak. So he thought to himself, what is this? If a, and if a frog is caught by a, a um, it's caught, it shouldn't continue croaking. So he went to see and he saw it was caught by the small water snake. Uh, so he said, if it had been caught, uh, if, if, if it had been caught by a cobra, he would have croaked at most three times and then it would have been finished. Likewise with the ego. If ego comes to the real guru, it may croak three times, but then it's finished. Whereas if it's caught by a, an unqualified guru, 
it's like this big frog in the mouth of a small water snake. The water snake cannot swallow the frog, and the frog cannot escape from the water snake. Why can the frog not escape? In the case of uh, why cannot guru, disciples escape from false gurus? Because they believe, oh, my guru is great, my guru is great. And they, they because of their being so enthralled with their guru, they are stuck with the guru, and the guru is stuck with them, and neither can finish off the other. So both suffer, as Ramakrishna and Paramahamsa said. But in the case of Buddha, he, because of his discrimination, None of those water snakes could hold him. They tried to catch him, but they couldn't hold him. In the case of Kabir Das, his, his guru didn't even want to catch him. But because of his great faith in the guru, uh, he, um, he, uh, that is by, 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 though the guru was not God, because he took his guru to be God, the grace of God was flowing through that guru in his case. Yes, thank you very much, Michael. You just uh, proved this my uh, actually belief. Let's call it yes. That uh, if the you problem did... is when the guru is an immature guru and the disciple is an immature disciple, then it's like the the, the big frog and the small water snake. If it's exactly. a mature disciple, even an immature guru cannot hold them back. Yes, actually. But, but most of us are the opposite. We are the immature disciples with the perfect guru. So we are very, very blessed. So we are like the frog, and most will croak three times, then we'll be swallowed. Um, we like the frog caught by the cobra, that is. Yes, 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 you are correct. Uh, because I somehow uh, always believed that uh, um, whatever guru it is, you will, if you, if you really uh, check yourself, um, examine yourself, if you, uh, uh, what, what, what you need, then you will find something. Because yes, it's yes, because yes, it's yes. metal yes. product. Uh, yes. In uh, different cases, it works differently. In okay. most, in Kabir's case, Kabir was an exception. Though he was so mature, he wasn't brought to a highly mature, to a highly qualified guru, but it wasn't necessary in his case because of his maturity. Um, for most of us, as soon as we are ready for it, or sometimes even before we're ready for it, we are brought to Bhagavan. And having come to Bhagavan, we need not worry about others. But what we need to be careful about, many people come to Bhagavan, and then they hear about this Mataji, that Mataji, or this person who said, I am in, the, I am in the, the, the lineage of Ramana Maharshi. There are so many would-be gurus nowadays who claim to be in Bhagavan's lineage. Even though Bhagavan, they, that shows they know nothing about Bhagavan because Bhagavan didn't have a lineage. Bhagavan didn't need a lineage. A lineage is necessary. If a guru dies, then there's a successor and a successor and a successor. There's so many generations. That's called a lineage. But Bhagavan is not such a guru. Bhagavan hasn't died because Bhagavan is not the body. Bhagavan is the eternal guru. So the eternal guru needs no lineage. That's why anyone who's, who claims to be in Bhagavan's lineage, they haven't understood Bhagavan at all. Uh, yes, to me, uh, uh, the main thing, uh, I mean, Pahavan to me is his teachings, actually. There is, uh, there is yes. like embodiment, actually. Yes. 
Uh, of course, grace, but we cannot, uh, I mean, grace works uh, uh, no matter we think about this or not, don't not think about this. We, we just, uh, what, the only uh, thing they have to uh, think uh, when we come to Pahavan, it's about his teachings. I, yes, I, we have to think about his teachings and put them into practice. Yes, but this, by the way, this, uh, thank you very much for this uh, uh, Kabir case. It's very, really, very Yeah, Yes, it's a beautiful story. Just, all, all stories about Kabir are very, very beautiful. <laughs> yes, I mean, that it just shows how grace works uh, absolutely, I mean, its yes, ways yes. are absolutely enigmatic. Grace is in no way limited by name and form. Grace can work even through a stone. If you <laughs> yes. if you worship a stone thinking it is God, God's grace will work through that stone. Exactly, we read about uh, this uh, uh, relationship between great uh, disciples and elements. They were even learning from elements, not yes. considering them to be their gurus. So it's <laughs> yes, yes. Thank you very much, Michael. Okay, right. The next question is. Am I dreaming you or are you dreaming me? It is also confusing. We do not even exist and we are all the self. So there is no me or you. So I'm asking this question to whom? Myself? I, I am asking that question. So very, that I is the me you, you say doesn't exist. So that is when we rise as ego, that is, there is only one reality. That is our own being. I am. That alone is what is real. When we rise as ego, we conflate this, this pure awareness I am, our being, with adjuncts. So instead of being aware of ourselves as just I am, we're aware of ourselves as I am this person. So long as we take ourselves to be a person, we take every other person to be an I, an ego, just like us. So, so long as we are dreaming, we are seeing the dream world, and we see so many other people in the dream world, and those other people seem to be seeing the dream world just as we are. If we ask the people in our dream, do you see this? They'll say, yes, of course we see this. So, so long as we are dreaming, we, we mistake ourselves to be a person, we see many other people who seem to be just like us, and they seem to be seeing the world. Who is, a, who is the one who is dreaming this? The one who is dreaming this is the one who is experiencing this. So who that one is knows who they are. So they need not ask, is it me or is it you? If you, if you are experiencing this world, you are the dreamer. And everyone else is... a is uh, not only everyone else, even the person you take yourself to be is a part of your dream, and all the other people are part of your dream. That is, the person is not the dreamer. The, the dreamer is ego. When we, when we dream, we as ego take ourselves to be a person, but the person we take ourselves to be is not the dreamer. The person we take ourselves to be is a part of the dream. So which person is dreaming all this? No person is dreaming this. There's one ego dreaming this. That ego identifies itself as one person. I am this person. It sees many other people 
and it gets into confusion. All The root of all confusion is this primary confusion. Ego is itself a confusion because we are confusing chit and jada. That is, ego, one of the descriptions of ego that Bhagavan gave is chit jada granti. Chit means pure awareness, that means satchit. Jada means this body consisting of five sheaths. All these five sheaths are jada. Uh, so, uh, and granti means a knot. So, when chit and jada are conflated together, when they become entangled, that result is ego. Of course, chit is itself never entangled. It's only in the view of ego, but chit, I, chit, seem to be now entangled with all these other things. Ego is not the, the, the dreamer is only ego. It's not the reality. It's not I am. It's not dreamy anything. It's only this false entity called ego, which has, which takes itself to be a person, but it is not that person. Because, because I am aware of myself as I am Michael, it seems to me that Michael is seeing the world. But it's not Michael who's seeing the world. It's only I, the, uh, the ego that identifies itself as I am Michael, that sees the world. 